0: The Bob Murphy Show, episode 112. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. I just want to clarify in case you're wondering why it's taken me so long to get around to the topic that everyone's talking about. Well, the issue is that I am uh, the production schedule for this podcast, the way it works. So, of course, I do the interviews well ahead of time. So at any given moment, I've got two or three that are in the can being processed by my various people doing their magic. And so there's a necessary lag in there. Also, for what it's worth, I was waiting to try to get a better handle on some of this stuff regarding the coronavirus before I pontificated officially on it. Of course, you can always go to Twitter, I'm Bob Murphy Econ at Twitter, to see my reactions, uh, you know, shooting from the hip, as it were. But at this point, it's um, time, I think, for me to go ahead and do an episode devoted to this. And obviously, I'll focus on the economic elements involved. But let me just say in the beginning, well, I mean, the first thing to say, of course, is for those of you who are uh, religious, you know, I just, I just re- remind you that, that God is in charge of this and try to be an example of serenity and wisdom for those around you because uh, this is obviously, I, I think this is going to get much worse as things continue uh, in all respects. So let me just start out by making an observation regarding a lot of the libertarian response on social media. It's obviously people are upset and, and rightly so, about the uh, infringement on civil liberties and so on. But it seems like the predominant response is that this is an unwarranted government overreaction to something that's not a big deal. And I just want to point out, you can still be an awesome libertarian and in fact, be an even better conspiracy theorist if you say the government is downplaying how bad this is and they're also doing unwarranted civil liberties crackdowns that make the problem worse. Right, (laughs) you're just as much of a libertarian. In fact, you're even better. Like I say, if you think the government's not telling us how bad this is, and what I mean by that is the, I think part of the problem with people trying to understand this is the the long incubation period that people can have the coronavirus and not know they have it, and then be going around and talking to people and and infecting them. And so I, I think that's part of the issue. And again, I hope I'm wrong. Right, I hope. A month from now, people point to my remarks right now and say, uh, uh-huh, Murphy fell for it." That would be great. I really would like to be totally wrong about this, but I have someone in, in my household who's got pre-existing lung issues, and so we've been really following this—you know—well ahead of when the average person was. And uh, I was initially hopeful that okay, well, if these measures can you know bend the curve or flatten the curve and it's just no the, the new cases that are being reported just keep skyrocketing and it this i mean it's it's all over the place right that they people were spreading this thing before Americans even knew so in terms of when the social distancing became chic and everything it was already way too late at that point there are already lots of people affected and so i'm i and i think that's partly why you see a lot of people working in the healthcare sector are freaking out about this right it's not because they're all part of the Bilderberg group. It's that they know they're being basically sent into battle without masks, right? It's like telling troops to go take Normandy and give them a bunch of butter knives saying, go get them tigers. That that's kind of the situation. Healthcare workers are, I mean, I'm seeing uh, my wife is, is part of like Facebook groups for people who work in, you know, hospitals, you know, nurses and stuff like that. And some of them are saying that they're being told to wear bandanas. If, 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 you know, if they have nothing else and that, is one point I want to make make sure I don't forget to make is that the CDC misled Americans originally as to how you get this thing and what you can do to protect yourself. And so, whether they deliberately lied or just were incompetent and said something, you know, my what I think happened is they knew if they told people, oh yeah, wearing masks is better than nothing, then that would have exacerbated the mask shortage in the hospitals. For the you know, the front line of defense against people dealing with those who come in presenting symptoms and probably have the thing or you know, may, may very well have it. The people talking to them are the last people in the world, and then who are also going to be working in the hospital and then working with somebody who then goes and works with a woman going into labor, that kind of stuff. That's absolutely who you don't wanna have lacking a mask and gloves and whatever. So I think that's partly what drove the quote authorities. Initial recommendations to the public, where if you remember, they were telling people, "Oh yeah, yeah don't don't get a mask. That that's not what you need. Well, you just make sure you wash your hands and really, you know, uh, wipe down surfaces." So they led people to believe that the way you caught this thing was by shaking hands. It was you know they're doing that stuff. They're like do a fist bump instead. Don't do. So it, people thought, oh, the way you get this is through, you know, I shake somebody's hand who has it or somebody whatever, uses a pen at the bank and then I use that pen. And if I go eat lunch and I haven't washed my hands in the meantime, or if I'm absentmindedly touching my lips or something, that's how it gets into you. But nobody initially was telling people, oh yeah, if you're just talking to someone in a closed room, you could get it from that. And the reason I'm, I, I know that's not the messaging they were giving is because like I said, we we have in our household, we got someone who really can't get this thing or it's going to be a bad deal. So we were being very careful. I mean, it, to give you an example, of what I mean, I at one point again before, like, well, there was still toilet paper and stuff in the stores. Like, <laughs> that's kind of you know, like the birth of Christ is the way to mark your calendar. Well, like, guys, with this thing, I can, I know I can remember the timeline because I re- can remember at what point was I still going to the store, and looking around, and say, no, no, things are still okay here. Um, So this was before the run on toilet paper and such. And I went to get gas because I wanted to make sure I had a full tank of gas for various things. And I, I wore a glove, you know, using the thing. I, I always would, by the way, just, you know, I'm kind of a germaphobe, would use hand sanitizer anyway after getting gas, just period. That's how I roll. But on this one, I was being extra cautious and using a glove to pump my gas. And it just so happened that I, you know, paid at the pump with a card because that's more, e- that's easier. But I wouldn't have been opposed to walking in and paying with cash and talking to the teller. Because at that point, I was firmly convinced the way you got this thing was through your hands and then if you forgot and then touched your lips or something. So I'm, I'm just saying that's it, it, clearly because I, the reason I'm dwelling on this so long, folks, just, you know, is I complained about this on Twitter a while ago once, you know, I had seen various experts saying, oh, yeah, the way you catch this thing is from talking to people, you know, sharing the same air in a closed environment as them. That's, that's how you get this thing. That's how it spreads. And that was news to me at the time. And so I was sharing that and saying how the CDC had misled people. And then I had a bunch of even medical people, who, some of whom I think were libertarian, were like telling me, no, Bob, what are you talking about? CDC's-. And I'm telling you, no, it, it was not fine. They clearly led people who were really looking for guidance here as to how, what do we need to do to make sure you know, not only that the person in the household who's vulnerable doesn't get it, but that the other people in the household don't unwittingly get it and then bring it home. You know that's the way you got to think if you got somebody who's at at risk in your house, and clearly, you know, we we were led to believe early on that yeah the way you get this thing is uh, is not through air. So, having said all that, um, I I think again just to tie it to my earlier remarks that sure you can be mad as a as a good libertarian against the government and how they lie and blah blah, but just keep in mind that. It, it there's another alternative. It's not merely, the only alternative isn't just that, oh yeah, the government's hyping this, this isn't a big thing, and uh, they're just using an excuse to create, it could It could be, I could say, the other way around, that the government, the way it screwed up was by giving bad information up front that allowed this thing to spread for a lot longer um, than it needed to. So incidentally, I'm not going to get into here in this episode about how would your Rothbardian utopia have handled this bob because i've i've dealt with that on like tom wood's show he had me on for bob murphy week a while ago so i'll link to that stuff Um, and some of my other things back when if you guys remember andrew speaker was a guy with tuberculosis who was flew on an international jet and everyone was freaking out about that and so then i wrote an article for mises.org about how would a free market handle quarantine so I'll link to that stuff in the show notes page. This is bobmurphyshow.com slash 112. If you want to see that stuff, but I'm not going to dwell on that here because that's kind of beside the point right now. I will just say a thing that would have been huge on this up front would have been for there to be more testing kits. And that's something right now that's, that's ludicrous that you know we're going through is that people who are at risk, like there's just a story my wife showed me where this lady who lives near us, she, her son was 17 and got it somehow. And so she was caring for him and she has, I think she had had cancer before and whatever. So this lady is a high risk candidate and she started developing a lot of the symptoms if, if you having COVID-19 and she went and they wouldn't even test her, right? Because I guess there's a shortage of the, you know, swabs that they need to test and so forth. Whereas I guess they went and t- tested the whole basketball team because one guy was positive and, you know, other things equal professional athletes are probably going to survive this. Whereas this lady was an at-risk person dealing with someone at her house you know, who had it and they wouldn't even test her. She had to fight. They finally did, but like she really had to fight just to get tested. So clearly there's government regulations preventing that sort of thing. And you know, they were recently relaxed, but there, I mean, this is not just Monday morning quarterbacking and we have to somehow as libertarians, oh, well, I got to blame the government somehow. Let me bend over. But no, this is obvious stuff where people were wanting to test And the CDC and FDA weren't letting them. All right, so this is clearly an area where a lot of stuff that just common sense that would have happened was not allowed to because of government regulation. Because after all, in a free market, there'd be quacks, you know, doing brain surgery. We can't have that. We got to have the government approve everything medically in this country. And okay, and then you can see why that's maybe not such a good strategy. Let me just, since I brought it up, let me just give some more specifics too about what I mean about some of the libertarian responses to this again and i i really i'm i'm not pointing fingers and i'm sure i had this attitude on other areas where it wasn't something that was directly affecting me or people in my household so uh, you know it wasn't that big on my radar but for example let's say just, i'm, I'm going to use an analogy let's say you are somebody who posts memes all the time or makes comments about you know like there's a news story about A cop killing a dog. You know, the cops go into somebody's house and they kill the dog for no reason. If somebody then, when you posted that story, commented underneath it and said, you know, uh, this is just fear mongering and and cop hatred. In this country, every year, there's way more dogs that are killed by cars than by cops. So what are we going to do? Are we going to ban cars? I don't think so. Would you find that a particularly illuminating comment on your post? Right. So, likewise, you know, people saying stuff like, More people right now are killed by vending machines falling over on them than this. Right. And if this just the death toll just stayed at this number, you'd be totally right. But the issue is this thing, you know, if it were vending machines that could go into other factories and take over the factory to crank out more vending machines that then around went around falling on people such that the number of (laughs) killer vending machines doubled every two to three days, that might be a different scenario, wouldn't it? Right. So again, I really hope few months from now, people point to this and say, oh, Murphy you idiot, you know you fell for it. good. I hope that happens, but my point is simply that the nature of this thing and why some people are very concerned about it, it doesn't exactly work just to point to some other static numbers because again, with this thing there's steps that could be taken, and I don 't mean martial law, but there are ways that people could have adjusted their behavior if they had known about this sooner that could have slowed the spread of it right so that's that doesn't just pointing that fact though doesn't mean that the right policy or the right way to behave and respond to it pops out at the other end but I'm saying some of these glib analogies or points about statistics and things I think are failing to adequately understand what the ostensible threat is here and so the analogies don't quite work or just to say oh this is just like you know this isn't even the flu. Well, I'm telling you guys, it sounds to me like you don't have people who have lung issues that are trying to get medical attention anytime soon, because it's not just like the flu in that respect. The system is on the verge of getting hit pretty hard, the healthcare system. And so it's not just people who have this particular issue, but anybody, you know, I I won't, won't name his name, but I know somebody who just posted, oh, he had really bad kidney stones and he went in the hospital and they gave him Tylenol and told him to leave. Why? Because they're gearing up for this thing. So, uh, again, it's it's not merely like, oh, yeah, if you're, if you're elderly or, you know, you've had leukemia or something, you might be in trouble. But other than that, this is nothing. I think you're not really fully taking into account how underprepared the system is. And, again, this is, you know, this is all consistent with libertarian stuff, right? I'm not telling you, stop being a libertarian on this. No, I'm just saying the way you are a libertarian on this, you don't need to downplay the seriousness of this threat. It's the other way around. You could say as a good libertarian, look at how unprepared our hospital system is for this stuff and if you want to try to blame this on capitalism, let me roll up my sleeves and and go toe to toe with you and show you how no that's not capitalism's fault. In fact, you know, the the things we really need right now are stuff that capitalism is great for like mass producing masks, hand sanitizer, you know, that kind of stuff, the stuff or toilet paper for that matter. You know, this is not what you want to have socialism for. You want to have free market capitalism if part of the way a society deals with this threat is to crank up on protective personal equipment. All right. I suppose w- one last time, just because I had jotted some notes down on this issue, just to make sure you guys are getting my point. I think this is clearly going to be like 9-11, and so do a lot of you, in the sense of we are going to forever have a different society now and what the government does and what the public goes along with and thinks is normal is forever altered. Just like those of us who are old enough can remember what flying was like before 9-11. And now we permanently have the TSA and blah, blah, blah. And so likewise too, after this, things are not going to be ever the same again. And you can make those points as a libertarian, but you don't have to deny that planes hit the Twin Towers. You can say Dick Cheney also planted explosives, right? So if you want, to, you can say that the US government engineered this thing or the Chinese government did and they released it to stop, you know, the Hong Kong protest or whatever. But again, there's plenty of options that you can have as a libertarian when responding to this besides merely saying this is completely overblown. People you know have a ruddy nose and that we're going to shut down the economy because of a ruddy nose, give me a break. Anyway, all right. I've made my point there. Alienated half of you. Uh as far as some of the the best commentary I've seen on this. Um, one guy was pretty good. Joe Rogan had him on, but uh, his name's Michael Osterholm. He's the uh, University of Minnesota's head of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy. I think that's his exact title. So anyway, I, I'll i post a link uh, to him in the show notes page, but some of his stuff I was really helping me understand more about this just to get a grip on it. And one line that he had that I thought was really good was he was saying a lot of Americans right now are still viewing this like it's going to be a blizzard in DC and you got to hunker down for two days and then it's back to normal, you know, stock up on stuff and just wait for the plows to come through once it stops snowing and then everything goes back to it. And he's saying, no, this isn't a blizzard. This is the first week of winter. And that's what we're entering. And he was saying this really isn't going to go back to normal, medically speaking, until they come up with a vaccine which he thinks is going to take 18 months. Okay, so to be clear, he's not saying, oh yeah, everyone's got to stay inside their house for 18 months. I mean, that, that was part of his point. He was saying, not only do we have to learn how to die with this, we have to learn how to live with it too. By which he means, we, you know, we got to make decisions about what are we going to do? And, and one thing too, just so you know, he's not a knee-jerk alarmist. He does do implicit cost-benefit calculations. He was saying stuff like, he disagrees with the policy, or at least he's very skeptical of the policy about canceling school because he was sick. Because, number one, the you know, kids themselves aren't too vulnerable to this thing. But besides that, he was saying if you have the kids not in school, then that knocks out something like 20 percent of the healthcare force because a lot of them are people who, if the kids are home, can't go into work. They got to stay home with their kids. And so – you know, it's it's not obvious that if, in terms of society's response to the coronavirus canceling school for the rest of the year, it's not obvious that's a good thing. Even if you put aside the other cost, you know what I mean? But just in terms of narrow-mindedly trying to stop the coronavirus. And more generally here too, I could invoke Mises' calculation argument that central planning does not work. It's not merely that there's other values and maybe the dictator in charge of a centralized economy has a value system that's different from the average person's. I mean, that's certainly a factor too, but the point is running a large economy with millions of people, there's so many trade-offs and different ways of doing things that without market prices giving some guidance, you have no idea if what you're doing is even helping you approach your goal or not, right? And so likewise here, even if we put aside civil liberties and we assumed we were just, you know, a beehive, or an ant colony all doing what's in the best interest of the hive, it's not obvious. Like something like, oh yeah, close the schools down immediately. Let's, we're not screwing around with this coronavirus. It's, you know, even, you know, forget the kid's education, who cares about that? This is serious. It's not obvious that shutting the schools down is the best thing to do if all you even care about is stopping the spread of coronavirus. Cause again, that means now you've just taken away people from um, the hospitals and, and doctor's offices and such. So in any event, I would uh, encourage you, if you haven't listened to him, uh, to Michael Osterholm, And I don't merely just mean his Joe Rogan interview. I mean, like, just seeing him quickly. He was on, he's doing the rounds on CNBC, Squawk Box and stuff like that, too. So he's uh, a pretty mainstream guy that yet, to me, at least seems to be talking a lot of common sense. As far as, you know, is is this Agenda 21? Is this the end? Certainly, if this isn't them dropping the hammer, this is the dress rehearsal for it. that you know, I know a lot of people have been looking at various trends and that they, they can see the erosion of civil liberties over time. And certainly a lot of stuff that we're seeing right now is definitely that play card. I imagine it's going to be something like Robert Higgs' um, analysis and in crisis in Leviathan with a so-called ratchet effect, where there's a crisis. The government ramps up its powers. And it's violations of civil liberties. But then when the immediate crisis passes, they do pull back somewhat, but they never go fully back to the pre-crisis standard, right? So for example, I was in grad school at NYU when 9-11 occurred. Right after the towers went down, there were literally, I think they were like armor personnel carriers, you know, so vehicles that looked um, you know, they were, they, were, they were more impressive than Jeeps, but they weren't tanks. In the streets of New York, like I was walking home to my apartment and, or, you know, to the subway or whatever, and you would literally see just U.S. soldiers walking around certain streets that were near the site of the Twin Towers, something that would have been unthinkable before that happened. But eventually the soldiers went away, right? They had, they had it there at first, and then they pulled them away, you know, when people went back to normal, because otherwise people after a while would have said, gee, why do we have soldiers patrolling the streets there? So um, I think there's a similar thing here where, or with the, um, the Boston Marathon bombing, how the authorities were going house to house looking for those suspects. So they needed the excuse to do that, to then just show, oh yeah, we have the right to go house to house, kicking in people's doors, and let's, let's, let's let the public get used to that. But they couldn't have just done that indefinitely, right? After a while, people would have said, what are you doing? You can't just keep going house to house, right? So likewise here, there's lots of stuff that government officials at all levels are doing and also Federal Reserve officials are doing that have been in their wish list all along and now they're using this opportunity to go ahead and do it, right? To give an analogy too, when people are saying, oh, what are you saying? This was all some big plan. I mean, it depends how high up the hierarchy you want to go and what your worldview is. If you are a Christian, then you think that, yeah, there is a malevolent force who's really running the show behind the scenes. But it, you don't need to. Like For example, there's plenty of people right now who aren't going to pay their rent this month, right? And so like you could say, all along, they would have loved to not pay their rent and still stay in their apartment or to not pay make their mortgage payment and still stay in their house. It's just they couldn't have gotten away with it in a normal time. But right now, they can get away with it because they know what's going to happen, you know? <laughs> I think I'll send the sheriff to my house. I'll answer the door and be like, oh, <clears throat> what's that officer? Yeah, but my throat's really sore. My chest my, my is, you know, They'll really okay, yeah, we'll come back next week. Thanks. So I, I think that's one way just to think it through just to see how casual and natural this would be that if you're somebody who seeks positions of power, you like having power over people. And even if you not in a sinister way, but just in terms of, well, no, I mean, the more power I have, the, the more I can do things the right way right? The more that's under my control, the more I can do it right. And so naturally you would use this opportunity to go ahead and un- unfurl those things while you can, while the public is in no position to push back on it. Uh, as far as what the Fed has been doing, let me talk a little bit about that. So one thing is they got rid of the reserve requirement and they, <laughs> the way they did that was pretty interesting. So it was a Sunday night or it was a Sunday when the Fed had this surprise meeting and announcement announcing, you know, 700 billion, I think, in renewed QE, all sorts of other stuff with injections of liquidity in the repo markets. And then the actual press release, you know, if you go to the Federal Reserve's website and what was the press release released on that day, it summarizes things. And then at the bottom, it said, had this kind of almost throwaway line about, there were other measures to boost the flow of credit to households and businesses and go see this other release for that information. So you click that one. So this is now we're not even talking about the the main press release. It's something you had to go click on, click through to see. And it's another sheet showing, you know, all the different stuff that the Fed's doing to boost the flow of credit and blah, blah, blah. And then the very last section of that announcement, there's a paragraph on, I mean, in fairness, it has like a, a section header, but... They're getting, they got rid of reserve requirements, or at least as of March 26th, I think. The official reserve requirements have been waived now for depository institutions, right? So what that means is legally, a commercial bank does not need to hold percentage of reserves to back up, if you will, the outstanding demand deposits or you know customer checking accounts. So just making up numbers. Before, let's say the reserve requirement was 10%, just rounding. So if Citibank, if its customers collectively have a billion dollars in their checking account balances, right? Like if you went to every Citibank customer and said, hey, what's your checking account balance? And it goes, oh, I have $740 in there. You ask him like, what's yours? He goes, oh, I got 32 in there. What's yours? Oh, I got 1,200. And you added up all those numbers and it added up to a billion. Then Citibank has to have, if there's a 10% reserve requirement, has to have at least $100 million in reserve. And that can either be vault or sorry, cash in the vault, like you know, literal green pieces of paper with pictures of presidents on them in Citibank branches, vaults and cash. So if somebody shows up, they can give them the cash. Or it also counts if Citibank itself with its account with the Federal Reserve has money on deposit electronically. All right. So let's say Citibank has 40 million in cash and 60 million electronically that you know, the Fed agrees, yes, you have with deposited with us Citibank $60 million, right? So that adds up to $100 million. If Citibank has a billion dollars in outstanding customer checking account balances, then that's the 60 plus the 40 is 100. That satisfies the 10% reserve requirement. So that reserve requirement has now been abolished. So it's in terms of what does that mean? Well, a lot of people are actually poo-pooing and ah, that does nothing burger because since the financial crisis reserve, the reserve requirement wasn't a binding constraint. So that that is true, that after the Fed's massive injections of base money following the 2008 crisis, the amount of bank reserves were well in excess of what was necessary to satisfy the reserve requirement. Or another way of putting it is the banks were awash with excess reserves following the financial crisis. Whereas beforehand, before the financial crisis, that wasn't the case. The banks barely ever had excess reserves, okay? So it's true that since late 2008, the reserve requirement hasn't been binding. That hasn't been restricting what banks w- were able to do. But nonetheless, I still think, I mean, the fact that they did it, there must be a reason they did it, right? That's that's kind of interesting. Like People say, oh, it doesn't mean anything. Well, then why'd the Fed do it? All right, so I think the fact that they did it in, it was not something that was trumpeted with a spotlight. It was sort of like a thing you had to go looking for. To me, means that was something they didn't like, and this was their opportunity to get rid of it when no one's going to care amidst everything else going on. No one's going to balk too much about eliminating the reserve requirement. Uh, let me just point out, there are other countries that don't have reserve requirements, okay? So this isn't like some new thing globally. It's, it's unprecedented for the U.S. This has never been true since at least the, the Fed's been founded. But it it's not that this is a new thing that's just being unveiled right now on planet Earth. Other countries don't have it. As far as, what does that mean? Do, do, do those other countries have an infinite amount of bank accounts, right? This <laughs> is the people in those countries just have an in, infinite amount in their checking total. No, they don't. Even without reserve requirements and even with, you know, the practice of fraction reserve banking, an individual bank is still going to keep some reserves, right? They, for if for no other reason, when people show up in just day-to-day transactions and want to get money out or they, you know, go to their ATM or something, I mean, the bank has to have enough cash to not just be short on a, on a, on a regular business day, okay? So the commercial banks, even without the government forcing them to, have to have some reserves, okay? So so that's part of the explanation there as to, which well, gee, if reserve requirements are waived, Does that mean reserve percentages literally go to zero? No, they don't. don't. There's a reason they keep them. However, if you are a subscriber, certainly to Murray Rothbard's view of fractional reserve banking and the connection to the business cycle, then this is not a good sign that if and when things did go back more towards normal in terms of the Fed having to sell off its balance sheet and pull reserves out of the system at some point, those that reserve requirement would have been binding again. And now they, they've gotten rid of that constraint. So to me, this is more of them thinking longer term and saying, okay, down the road when this reserve requirement might have been a constraint, now it's not going to be, all right? And so again, if you're a believer in Austrian business cycle theory, certainly the way Rothbard or Joe Salerno or more recently Bob Murphy thinks about it, then that's, that's giving the banks more ability to inflate other things equal. Let me, since I'm talking about the Fed, talk a little bit about the, the whole repo market stuff and this injections of liquidity, because there's a lot of confusion on this as well. So for example, the Fed, if it comes out and says, Oh, we're gonna we're gonna unveil $1.5 trillion in new repo operations, you know, for one to three month repos. in some people are, oh my gosh, the Fed just gave the banks one and a half trillion. So that is a little bit or perhaps a lot misleading. But on the other hand, the the people who are poo-pooing the alarmists and saying it's nothing, that's also incorrect. So let me just try to give some clarity as to what does that mean when the Fed says stuff like that. So the repo market and that stands for repurchase agreement. That's what a repo is, a repurchase agreement, repo for short. And what happens there is companies that need cash will post collateral, like very safe bonds and particular treasury securities. And then other firms that have access to literal, you know, currency, you know, they have actual money, will give it to them. Okay. And you can I can mean, you know, bank deposits too. There I don't I don't mean they give them suitcases full of hundred dollar bills. But I'm I'm just saying when people talk about like the money market they don't actually mean money, right? So I'm trying to be real specific here that people can have access to very liquid things, but they need actual money to pay their bills. And so those firms that need actual money, they can put post very safe collateral, such as a treasury bond, and then get a loan. And the way these things are structured, instead of it being a loan contract, where it says, okay, I'm borrowing whatever, a million dollars from you overnight at a certain interest rate. And if I default on that loan, then you get to take my treasury as the collateral you know, to satisfy it. Instead of doing it that way, instead of these repurchase agreements, it's economically virtually the same thing. It's just the structure of the contract is different. So technically what happens is the lender takes, let's say it's a million dollars and buys a million dollars worth of treasury bonds from the borrower. So now the lender owns the treasuries, and then now the borrower has the cash, and then tomorrow the borrower repurchases the treasuries at a slightly higher price. So that's what the agreement is. The agreement is saying, you know, you're, you're buying these treasuries for me today, but tomorrow I'm going to repurchase them from you. And the price that the repurchase occurs at is slightly higher than what the original sale was. Hence, the lender gets back more dollars than he started out with. Okay and so then you can of course calculate on an annualized basis what's the implicit interest rate in that and that's what the repo rate is okay so so what the fed has been doing is saying we are going to enter these markets and we will provide they would call liquidity right we're the ones that will create money electronically and lends to firms that need cash and they'll give us their treasuries as collateral and then, you know, they'll give us more cash back once the thing unwinds. And the Fed has been doing that particularly in not just the overnight market, but now longer-term markets, namely one month all the way up to three-month repos. Okay, so one thing I always want to point out about this is just to show you how the elites have utterly failed. And this kind of goes back to when I was saying, are they dropping the hammer now or not? I think this crisis is showing the average person just that the elite's do not have things under control, right? That the the, hosp- the medical sh- healthcare system is completely screwed up right now. That we're right now we're scrambling with a shortage of masks. I mean, that's that's nutty. That a hospital that can have, you know, multi-million dollar worth of fancy diagnostic equipment and stuff. And right now they have people who are at home making masks with household supplies to then donate to their local hospital. I mean, that's nutty. Clearly something screwy there. Again, we can... You know, Bernie Sanders would say it's the fault of free market and healthcare. Presumably, the listeners of this podcast would say something else. But whatever your explanation for why it is the way it is, clearly this system right now is screwed up and was extremely vulnerable to a shock. So I I think that's partly why people running this show do have to unveil things perhaps rapidly, is because they realize that, you know, the public is not going to tolerate this, you know, with Brexit and other populist movements and things It's clear, <laughs> the natives were growing restless. And so something like this hits, a lot of people um, are gonna, I think, be more vociferous and, and saying, what the heck is going on here? You technocrats clearly don't know what you're doing. And so that might have accelerated some of these more long-term plans to contain civil liberties that a lot of people listening to this podcast were, probably have been following for years. So there, there's that element as well, that I think some of this stuff... If it seems sudden, it might be because, yeah, their their hand was forced. They realized that, well, we're losing control of this. We got to go ahead and clamp down right now. But back to the liquidity issues. So another manifestation of this, just to show how unprepared the ostensible smartest guys in the room were for something like this, just take a step back. I mean, the standard financial planning, you know, you're talking to, And I work with a lot of financial planners, right? With the stuff that I do for the Nelson Nash Institute. By the way, I don't want to turn this into a self promotional thing by any stretch. Certainly, I didn't know a virus was coming two months ago. But I will say, I'm getting notes from people saying, wow, Bob, you know, the stuff that you and Carlos Lara were putting out, you know, you saved my life savings, or, you know, I'm so glad I did that. Thanks so much. And blah, blah. So I'm just saying the things we were telling people because we knew the system was very vulnerable that you know, a lot of that stuff, people who did that would be glad that they, they did it. So if you wanna know more about that, I'll put a link in the show notes page. For example, Carlson and I back in 2016 had a video called how to weather the coming storms and the advice in there <laughs> in retrospect was really good even though obviously our specific motivation or the thing we were warning about was not there could be a global pandemic. But in any event, coming back to my main point here. So, you know, standard practice, a financial professional dealing with like a middle-class household, if there's one or particularly there's two bread, breadwinners and they're in their forties, clearly uh, besides, you know, oh, what's your long-term retirement plans and that, that, how much do you have in your 401k? And incidentally, the, the people associated with the Nelson Nash Institute wouldn't be using those, those buzz terms, but I'm just speaking about just in general, this is standard stuff you would have an emergency fund, right? Like what if you get laid off? What if you get sick? What if you can't go to work, you know, for a while? What do do you have in liquid funds right now that you could use to sustain your basic austerity expenses? You know, pay your rent or your mortgage payment, get food, keep your electricity on, make your car payment, you know, figure out what your austerity budget is. And then what do you want to have? Three months, six months, six months. In terms of just very liquid savings available, money you know, money that's not tied up in in the, in the stock market or something in a tax qualified plan, but money you have access to—that's standard stuff, right? And so, what happens here when the Fed's coming out and saying, "Oh, the Treasury repo market is one of the most important markets in the world for f- uh, short term financing," and da, 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 and they're telling us that if they don't intervene, the whole world's going to collapse. I mean, that's That's shocking, right? Just think through what that means. That means all these major companies, not only do they not have three months worth of, say, they can't even go overnight without having some outside institution lend them a bunch of money just for their ongoing financing. Okay, so that type of short-term thing, I mean, that's, that's shocking when you think that through, that these major companies aren't as well prepared for a hiccup in their revenue stream as common sense you know would tell a middle class household to be ready for. I mean that's that's what it means if if you're saying we have to rescue the repo market otherwise you know the whole the whole global system goes down. Now part of it in fairness is an exaggeration just like the stuff that Paulson was saying back in September of 08 to try to get TARP through was an exaggeration, right? That he was making it's like ATMs were going to stop working. I like David Stockman's work where he has a great chapter in his book, The Great Deformation, where he just goes through and shows that that was fear-mongering. Major companies would have gone down. You know, Goldman Sachs and stuff would have gone down, but it's not like your ATM would have stopped working or your life insurance policy would have been canceled, which is what a lot of people led people to believe to justify TARP and all that stuff. Okay, so don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that what Jay Powell is saying about the repo market is exactly right but i think he is right that a lot of these major companies are very dependent on being able to roll over loans almost overnight in some cases and if that dries up they're in trouble and when i say dry up i don't mean it stops i mean that the interest rate they pay goes up right that and, and keep in mind back in september of 2019 when the fed first started intervening heavily in the repo markets daily there, the emergency was that the repo rate jumped from like 2% to 6%. Okay, so again, <laughs> this is like Armageddon that, oh my gosh, major companies have to pay 6% for their short-term financing. This is clearly why, this is why we need the Fed to now have this new power under its belt. Okay, so we can debate again about the, the causes of that. I would say this is the, the type of thing that the Fed's policies have encouraged, right? Very low interest rates, the Fed being ready and willing to enter and, quote, provide liquidity, that that's what made these companies adopt business models where they just assumed, okay, yeah, as long as we can keep getting money real cheap, let's go do X, Y, and Z. For another example, this general pattern, there were a lot of companies the last five, eight years that had been issuing debt at low interest rates in order to buy back their stock. All right, I think Boeing was one of them in particular that was doing that, okay? So right now, those moves don't look so good, do they? So with all these companies and the stock market's getting crushed, yes, obviously the immediate cause of this stuff is coronavirus, but I'm saying more generally, it's shocking that all these major companies on all these major stock exchanges around the world did not have planning in place to say, hey, what would happen if some, for some reason you know our business the revenue dried up for a month and that they're all brought to their knees, that's, that's kind of shocking when you would think big financial or, sorry, big corporations would be in a much better position to weather a storm, a temporary interruption in income than, say, a middle-class household. And yet that wasn't the case. I think part of the issue, just the intellectual mistake here, was assuming that the shocks would be localized, right? So one of the things... Back after the housing collapse, I was just calling people and reading a lot of stuff, trying to understand. Like, yeah, yeah, we know there's moral hazard from the Fed and all this kind of stuff, but still, isn't that shocking that when you when you see the, the like the things that were going on in the Big Short that movie, you know, with all those big guns, with the, it's showing up the housing bubble and the credit default swaps and mortgage backed securities and blah blah blah, and how the ratings agencies were involved and all these things. Yes, that movie left out the role of the Fed and in low interest rates. But even putting that aside, isn't it amazing that all these people were giving you know loans to people who clearly couldn't pay it back? And you just start pushing the explanation two and three levels deep to understand. Okay, well then, why did this happen? Why did this happen? Right. So for there, the example would be, or, or the, the immediate response is, oh, the reason uh, commercial banks, you know, mortgage originators in 2004, 2005, 2006, were giving so-called liar loans out, right? Where somebody would lie about his income in order to get approved for a mortgage. And the people giving the mortgage, they knew full well the guy was lying. And so why would they do that, right? Why, why would you bend the rules in terms of your underwriting in order to, or your credit check, whatever you want to call it, in order to lend money to someone so he can go buy a house when you know that person's not nearly as financially secure as he claimed to be on your application. And you knew if he had been honest on the application, then you wouldn't have been allowed, your policies wouldn't have let you give him the loan out. Well, the immediate answer is, oh, because the mortgage originators knew they weren't gonna sit on the mortgage. They were gonna sell it off to Wall Street and they were gonna take it and bundle it up. And so you say, well, why did Wall Street do that? Well, because again, they weren't gonna sit on it either. They were gonna bundle it up and sell it off in mortgage-backed securities. Well, gee, well, then why did the people who bought the mortgage-backed securities, why weren't they more vigilant. Well, because the credit rating agencies were looking at those things and giving them a clean bill of health, you know, saying they were AAA for the, the you know, the tranches that were the, the last to get hit, as it were. Well, gee, why did that happen? So there's various, you know, incentive problems and the Fed and bad regulation, blah, blah, blah. But the intellectual mistake was the computer models they were using back then to assess the risks involved in buying those mortgage-backed securities, particularly the tranches that were the most secure, right? So, picture a mortgage-backed security is like a big is a big uh, measuring cup, and let's say there's a thousand mortgages spread all over the country that are filling the thing up, right? So, if all thousand people make their mortgage payment that month, that fills up the whole measuring cup, and so then what the mortgage-backed securities were selling off were slices of the measuring cup, okay? And so that's, so if if 200 of the houses defaulted on their mortgage payments, then now the measuring cup's only 80% full. So the top slices are the riskiest. So if you were buying those, you wouldn't have to put up as much money because there was a risk that you weren't gonna see it, all right, but if the, if the payments did come in, then you'd get it. And so that, so the amount you had to pay for those type, those top slices was less than the, what the people had to pay for the bottom slices, right? So if you had the bottom 20%, it's like, oh, gee, more than 800 people out of the thousand of that original pool of mortgages would have to stop making their mortgage payments for you to stop getting your money on the thing that you bought. And so that's why you'd pay a higher price for that. And it would be rated as very secure, right? Like Standard and Poor Moody's Fitch would look at that thing and say, oh yeah, that's triple A. So the computer models that they used to help evaluate the riskiness of those mortgage backed securities i'm saying there was an intellectual mistake involved besides all the other stuff we want to talk about like you know community reinvestment act and freddie and fannie and all that stuff and the intellectual mistake was they assumed all real estate was local okay and so they weren't stupid you know they they had statistics in there about changes in the housing market they knew, for example, that the Las Vegas housing market could go down by 10% in one year. And they would go and look at history and try to statistically you know, estimate where the chances of that happening, blah, blah, blah. They knew that the Miami real estate market could go down by 10% in a year. They knew that the San Jose market could, blah, blah, blah. But they thought those were independent statistical events. And so whatever you thought the chance of the Miami market going down by 10% a year was, and whatever you thought, the Vegas market going down by 10% in a year was to say, what are the chances that the Vegas and the Miami markets both go down by 10% in one year? They thought you'd multiply those probabilities together in order to get that outcome. Just like if you were rolling dice and you say, what's the chance of getting the six? You'd say one out of six. And then you say, okay, well, what if I roll two dice? What are the chances that they're both six? Well, now it's one six times one, so it's one out of 36. See how that works? The assumption being that what one die turns up is independent statistically from what the other die does. And that's kind of how they were viewing and modeling in these computer simulations or I don't know, simulations the right word, these computer models to assess the mortgage-backed securities and what kind of safety rating they should get. That's what they thought. So they thought they were diversified, right? That, oh, you're not just buying real estate in the Miami market. That would be crazy if you're an institutional investor with a, you know, pension fund or something. No, what we're doing is what you're buying, Mr. Pension Fund Manager, is not just mortgages from the Miami area because that's too risky. What we're doing is we're selling you this um, derivative asset that is like a little piece of a a mortgage of a thousand different mortgages spread all, all over the country, And so you see how diversified you are, right? You're not exposed just to the Miami real estate market. You're exposed to the entire U.S. real estate market. And what are the chances that the whole market's going to go down a bunch in one year, right? That was the idea. And so that's why the things that actually happened in 2007, 2008 in the housing market, the computer models that had signed off on those mortgage-backed securities we're saying that, you know, those types of outcomes were supposed to be happening like once every thousand years or every 10,000 years. That's how unlikely they thought that outcome was. And so, you know, I would argue they were wrong. I mean, technically you could say, no, they were right. And it really was just a one in 10,000 year thing. It just happened to happen. I mean, that's possible. But I would say it's no, that they wrongly assumed real estate prices were all local, and in fact, they overlooked the possibility maybe there was some systemic factor that was gonna cause all the real estate prices around the country to go down, or at least in a lot of places, significantly, okay? And so coming back to our present discussion, I think that's partly what happened here, that the people who do you know, disaster management or just you know the people in the investment wing of these major companies or who do the cash management operations and stuff for these large corporations just to make sure they got enough money coming in to pay their bills on time and stuff. I think they had a somewhat circumscribed view of what was going on. And it was like, oh, yeah, if, or let's say you run a chain of restaurants. or Let's say you run a chain of hotels. Clearly, they know disasters happen. They know there could be a flood somewhere or a hurricane or a fire or tornado, earthquake, and that might knock out some of your Hotels, and they can't take res- you know residents for a while and you're losing that revenue, but something like this, where what if all of the hotels across the country or in, in, if you're an international one, even across the world, all of a sudden nobody can stay in them for two months that's something I don't think they planned on because you know what are the chances of that happening right so I think that's partly what was going on here, but again, whatever the the specific explanation, it is shocking that so many of these companies were that dependent on overnight financing that this sort of event cripples them all such that the Fed can at least claim with a straight face that, oh yeah, we need to do this. Otherwise the system could grinds to a halt. Now, let me just round out this discussion by talking about you know, injecting liquidity and what does that do? When it comes to liquidity, that's not the same thing as market value, right? So your house could have a market value of $100,000. What does that mean? Or, or, and, and let's say also you had some um, stock that had a market value of $90,000. So you'd say, oh yeah, my house has a higher market value than the stock, but the stock is more liquid. So, so what's the difference there? The difference is if you needed to turn that asset into actual dollars, like money in your bank account that you could use at the grocery store or you know, to buy something with, the means of final payment, you're, you could turn your stocks into the ninety thousand dollars pretty quickly, whereas the house that you claim is quote worth a hundred thousand. when you say that, you don't mean if you needed money next Thursday, you could turn your house into one hundred thousand dollars. What you mean is if I especially depending on the time of year, if I had a good two to three months to get a broker and to get the house ready and market it in the right spots and have open houses and da, 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 I think three months from now four months from now, I could have $100,000 and no house, assuming it was paid off, right? That's what you mean. So that's the difference between market value versus liquidity. And so I think one way to, to explain or interpret what happened here is as this coronavirus fear started gripping the financial markets, people, quote, rushed to safety And so they start dumping stocks. Incidentally, keep in mind, someone at any given moment has to own the stocks, right? Or the stocks are all owned by people. So when we say people are dumping stocks, that doesn't mean on Monday, there were, you know, a trillion shares that were held by people. And then on Tuesday, only 800 million shares were held and 200 million were now in limbo. That's not what we mean. When people dump stocks for every sell, there's a buy. So they're transferring ownership. So you could just as well say people were gobbling up stocks. But the point being, when they're selling heavily, it means that the price is dropping. That's, you know, that's the way of interpreting it. So people wanted to, you know, portfolio managers, other things equal. Once this crisis hit, they realized, whoa, we were underestimating the risks to the system. We were far too complacent. We want to switch now to a more defensive posture And so in times of uncertainty, you don't want equity, you want fixed income. And so they start dumping stocks and buying bonds. So that's what makes interest rates go down, right? Because for a bond is the market price of it goes up, the yield on it goes down, that's how that works. So people are bidding up the price of bonds. When you're looking at bond yields, the yields go down. And in particular, what kind of bonds do you want? Well, the safer ones are better and the safest bond on planet earth right now is the one issued by the federal government, the U.S. federal government, treasuries. So that's what people were going to see. That's why you would see stock prices collapsing and yields on treasuries dropping. But you know what's even more valuable in a crisis than a U.S. treasury is U.S. currency, the U.S. dollar itself. And so people were flocking to that too. And you say, well, what's the difference? You know, a treasury is a claim on dollars. Well, right, but it's, not as easily, Mark, you can't pay your bills with treasuries, all right? So a dollar is the most liquid thing. The liquidity, if we're talking about dollars, is measured in terms of how quickly can I convert this thing into dollars, right? So the dollar is itself, you know, the most liquid of assets in, a, in an economy that uses dollars as the money. And so treasuries are very liquid too, but I think one way of thinking about what happened here is the premium on the dollar's liquidity rose. Or in other words, the fact that the treasury wasn't as liquid as the dollar meant more to investors when the, when the crisis struck, that liquidity was more important than it was back in November. And so that's why that would have mattered more. And I, that's, I think, what you're seeing in the repo markets, right? Where Because that's really, if you're trying to isolate, it, that's what's going on in the repo markets is where you're trading, you're putting up treasuries in exchange for cash for dollars on a very short-term basis. And so their liquidity is really the issue. It's not, you know, so it's not a matter of are people solvent or not, right? It's not a matter of just in general is the market value of your assets higher than your liabilities. The issue is if you need to pay bills tomorrow, do you have money right now to do that? And the fact that, oh no, I, I've got, you know, the, the value of all my property is much higher than the value of my liabilities, well, if your assets aren't very liquid, that doesn't help you much if you have to pay a bunch of, you know, if you got to do payroll tomorrow. Okay, so that's the way to think about it. And so then you say, okay, so the Fed's just injecting liquidity, Bob, it's not like just handing money over, it's just doing loans. Well, th- it's a real thing, right? I mean, <laughs> forget the Fed for a second. I mean, there, there are banks and stuff in a, in a free market and cap society. And fear could grip that society. And what would happen is, yeah, the rates on, if they had repo or something like it, or just short-term loans would go up. And that would be the market signal for the, the change in risk attitudes. And those prices would mean something. And so likewise here, if investors really do value the dollar's liquidity more than they did before, market prices should be allowed to see that or to express that. And so when the Fed comes in and injects liquidity, that. Necessarily distorts things, among other. I mean, the way I think about it is, it's propping up the U.S. Treasury. That one of the Treasury's weaknesses is is its relative illiquidity. So it was trying to to dampen that down, to have people not worry about the Treasury's illiquidity, and to treat it as closer to being like literally interchangeable with dollars. Okay, so people are saying stuff like, "Oh, yeah, this is the end of the dollar." Right here, I view it more as what this is showing is people don't trust the Treasury that the treasury it, it recently i think the the most recent number i saw was the last 12 months it was something like the treasury had issued another 1.1 $1. $1 trillion dollars in debt it was before this you know crisis these are the the more recent most recent numbers i saw so the treasury is running up huge deficits and then this crisis hits and i think that's when you would have seen you know people concerned about this thing and so that's to me what the fed is doing is is rescuing the treasury or just solidifying the treasury here, I think it's not so much this crisis, but the next one maybe where the dollar's in trouble. That the, the Right now, people trust the dollar. That's really what they want. And what the Fed is doing is trying to use its powers to create dollars out of thin air to shore up all these other places. And so, yes, the distortion is not the exact same thing as if the Fed created $1.5 trillion in $100 bills and just gave it to you know, just a particular group of people with red hair. And so there you go. Yeah, that would distort things. But what they're doing here, it also distorts things just in a different type of way. Okay. Last thing, let me just talk about the, but no, two, two, two other things. So, so I want to talk about the, the hand sanitizer, price gouging stuff, and then also this issue of, you know, shutting down businesses and the economy. I've, I think, fans of the free market, they need to be a little more careful in their rhetoric. Some of what you're saying, you sound very Keynesian, right? That, not that there's anything wrong with that, but in terms of uh, making it sound like the, that if, P, if consumers aren't allowed to go out and spend money, then the economy implodes. And I, again, th- there's a grain of truth in that, obviously, but just, just be careful. So what I mean is just to give you an example, to illustrate what I'm talking about. If there had been a just a wave across America, people realizing, wow, you know what? We really have too much debt. And, uh, you know, just at the household level, we got too much debt. You know what? Why don't we, why don't we stay in more? You know, this is, you know, we've been going out to dinner all the time and we getting coffee at Starbucks. So, you know what? I'm running the numbers here, honey. And if we get a Keurig machine, if we just, you know, go to Sam's and we bulk up on our, our, we we could have steak at home and look at how much money we'd save. And we don't need to be going out to eat so much. And, Do we really need to go to the movies every other week? And So what if there was just this sweep across the country of a lot of households saving up by, you know, limiting or or scaling back their discretionary spending and they happen to be staying in more, right? Not going out to places. If, I mean, a year ago, if someone talked about that possibility and someone else said, no, I can't do that because that would wreck the economy, who would be saying that? Would it be an Austrian or would it be a Keynesian? it would be a Keynesian, right? And the Austrians would come back and say, actually, no, uh, you know, the point of the economy is not to provide jobs. It's to, you know, d- deliver stuff to the consumers. And yes, there would be layoffs in the restaurant industry and they would have shifted over to blah, blah, blah. And right, that that's how we would have handled it a year ago. And, and you know, <laughs> I hope you agree with me and, and you're not now forced to to pretend you don't remember that. That's clearly how we would have handled such a thing a year ago. Okay, so- just be careful, like I say, in how you're framing it. If, if you want to complain about the measures that are being taken, how it's going to destroy the economy, it's not simply that, oh, some, that households can't go to restaurants and spend money. It, it, granted, there, there's more going on here that people can't go to factories. People can't, a lot of people can't go to work, period. The only ones who can really work still are the ones, you know, like me, who can work from, a, from an internet connection. Okay, so I'm, I totally get that this is much bigger than what I just said about people deciding to go to, go out to eat less. but again, my, my point is when you're just trying to think through the, the logic of what specifically is it that's causing this problem, it's um, it's the supply side issue really that is the fundamental problem, the other stuff it's you know there would be distributional consequences, but in general, like I said, just if households decided, you know, why don't we just save up for, for a few months and bolster our, our savings, get some more money in the bank or whatever, so we feel a bit more comfortable. And then we'll go ahead and go back to restaurants later, you know, and maybe even we'll, we'll make up for it. We'll go out to eat more. But right now I'm really worried, honey, that, you know, we've only, we're living paycheck to paycheck. I'd like to get three months of savings in the bank. And then we can go back to our previous lifestyle. I'm saying a year ago, I mean, guys like Carlos Lara and I were telling people, that kind of stuff for years. By the way, let me just be clear: when I'm sitting here lecturing these major companies for not having three months' worth of liquid funds or whatever, I mean I'm guilty too. We're all like that, and I I think we can be forgiven. I do think it's the the powers that be in the system and the man that have set things up such that it's really hard to get ahead, right, with health care expenses and taxes and everything like that and all this crazy regulation. So don't don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying. bunch of lazy Americans and who are reckless and it's your own fault. That's not what I'm saying. There's reasons for why we were in this vulnerable position. But my point is still, nonetheless, a year ago, if people had been preaching the message of, you know what, American households right now barely have any money for an emergency. Why don't we all just try to save up and bolster our, you know, get three months worth of emergency austerity budget in our bank accounts or in cash at home if you don't like banks, which maybe is a smart thing or, you know, Bitcoin, whatever you want to put it in, but but have, you know, liquid funds and then go back to our previous lifestyle. If somebody objected to, you know, if a Joe Weisenthal or somebody said, oh, that would crash the economy, you know, what would the normal Rothbardian response have been? No, that's just a change in consumer preference. right? So um, likewise here, the the issue from staying home, if it's merely stuff like going out to restaurants or whatever, if you want to gauge the impact on the economy, yeah, it's it's the loss. Like if you're forced to stay home against your will, <laughs> it's because, yeah, I would rather have eaten out than staying home. But it's it's not like the lack of spending per se, that, that typically that's not how free market economists talk. That's more of a Keynesian thing. And so I'm just trying to have you be consistent in it. If you want to say, okay, maybe the Keynesians were right all along, fine, you can, you can say that. I'm, I'm not telling you not to say that, but my point is just, just notice that some of the rhetoric right now coming from free market circles is the way Keynesians normally talk, you know, to, to note that one person's spending is another person's income. That's a standard, you know, that's something Paul Krugman points out all the time and pulls his hair out. How could these Austerians not see that? Um, also to Again, in a in a sort of you know in a Rothbardian world, what would have happened or whatever? I think insurance would have played a bigger role in this. That I, I do think preparedness for major calamities would have been better. So does that mean it would have been like if you had a restaurant, would it have been easier for you to get insurance, you know, for some kind of unexpected event where people can't get into your into your place of business? You know, perhaps perhaps something like that. You know, that it's, it's hard to say because we don't live in that world, but in any event it should not be the case that because there's an interruption in revenue for a month the whole economy implodes you know that that's that's not that's not normal and again i'm not blaming the individuals involved i'm guilty myself i should have way more savings than we do right now i'm just pointing this out that the whole system here was incredibly vulnerable was stretched very thin that such that You know, there's all kinds of things. It didn't have to be a virus. There's all kinds of stuff that could have happened that would have plunged us into this mess. And that's incidentally too, a lot of us have been warning since 2008, 2009 about look at all the QE the Fed's doing. They've blown up the stock market. And now that it's crashing, you know, it's one is tempted to say, I told you so. And I'm not going to say it because obviously we weren't warning about a pandemic. But I do think the initial drops in the stock market before this fully, you know, manifested itself, I think showed that the system really was over. I think a lot of people kind of knew these stocks are overpriced. And once they started tumbling, people just started running for the exits. So I, I do think that this whole system really was over leveraged. And, you know, it was going to take something and okay, global pandemic, that would certainly do it. But I guess my point is, do not fall into the temptation to say, oh yeah, everything was fine. If only Trump and some of the other l- leaders in China and Europe had done a better job on the front end of this pandemic, everything would have been the way it was. Like th- th- That's not what's going on here. I think the whole system was very vulnerable to any kind of hiccup. And then we got hit with something drastic. Okay, the last thing I want to talk about is the, uh, the hand sanitizer guy and the issue of price gouging, because again, even here, I've seen even nominally free market people not fully understanding this, okay? Saying stuff like, uh, you know, yeah, he should be able to, to sell for a higher price, but I mean, driving around and, and cleaning out stores of hand sanitizers, that's just not cool, and you know, that kind of stuff, all right? So this, this guy, I'll, I'll put a link to the, in the show notes page, folks, if you want to see the exact details, but Guys going around, he heard about coronavirus. He knew that, or he anticipated that hand sanitizer was going to be a hot commodity. And so he not only cleaned out his local store, but apparently drove around and cleaned out, you know, like all the dollar stores and stuff in his area. And then just had a storage unit and had, I think something like $17,700, you know, at a regular price worth of hand sanitizer. And then was going to sell it on eBay for a greatly marked up price. And then eBay wouldn't let him. And then they tracked him down like because he stupidly gave an interview and like you could see the photo of his storage unit in the background and people knew what city he was in. so somebody on Twitter used like Google satellite imagery and figured out where he must be. And then that circulated on Twitter. And then all of a sudden, the attorney general shows up at the guy's place. And then he, I think, donated everything. Isn't that nice? So it, (laughs) it certainly looks like the guy had his stuff taken, right? Because the mob was out to get him and they didn't like it. All right. So obviously, I'm a human being. I'm a regular person. I understand why in the midst of this crisis, that would seem like a terrible thing to do and why you'd want to lynch that guy. I I get that. But now I'm going to say as an economist, no, what he did is actually what you would want. Okay. That what's the situation, you know, with there's, there's a given amount of bottles of hand sanitizer, right? Right now, boom. Where do they need to be in the country? Right. They, 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 they shouldn't all just be in one town in Alabama. That would be wrong. Right. And so the issue is how do we determine where they get sent and market prices are a way to communicate that information. And so that's what this guy was doing. Now you can say, well, he, you know, he should have done it just out of the goodness of his heart. I, well, a lot of people aren't going to. Okay. I mean, do, do you get paid to go to work? Why do you insist on getting it paid? Don't you believe in what you do? Doesn't your job. Don't you help people in some, in some way? Why do you insist on getting paid for that? Shouldn't you help people for free? are you right so i'm saying there's no principal line you're going to draw between this to, in order to you know distinguish what everybody does from what this guy was doing you know when we talk about how does somebody like like a a middleman right what does he do how do oranges get from groves in florida or california to grocery shelves in alaska the middleman, they buy the oranges for a low price and they ship them to where they can sell them for more money. Is, is that immoral? Should they not be allowed to do that, right? Is, should, should they just sell the oranges at cost because otherwise people in Alaska aren't going to have oranges? No, if they're not allowed to make money on it, then that's what's going to make the people in Alaska not have oranges, okay? So again, I, I get what's happening here and why there's this outrage, but especially like with the, um, let me let me hang on before I go to that point. Let me just dwell on this a little bit more. I have written, I'll put a link. So again, folks, this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 112. There's two things involved here. One is the function of market prices in terms of allocating resources to where they are most desperately needed. And then there's the issue of somebody's personal gain. So if you think it's not right for this guy to have profited from this misfortune of others, I think the way to handle that is to say, okay, like let's, you know, say the guy's Christian or something. And I would say, and let's say he called me and was wondering, you know, geez, a Christian, what should I do here? I'd say, okay, you can sell them for what the market will bear, but then you don't keep the money, right? You can donate that to whatever, a relief fund or, you know, to use it to try to buy masks or something to send to hospitals, whatever. Right. So th- that's a possibility. Okay. So let's distinguish those two things of you know, selling the hand sanitizer to the people who want to pay the most for it versus the seller pocketing that windfall gain. But, in, but now let's, let's dwell this a little more. It's not that the guy was just sitting on, you know, he wasn't a germaphobe who happened to have a whole uh, storage unit full of hand sanitizer. And then, oh, wow, all of a sudden the price exploded. Let me go ahead and sell this stuff. And he's benefiting from a windfall. No, he saw this come. He's a speculator. He knew or, you know, he correctly anticipated that the price was going to skyrocket on these things. And so that's why I'm saying this is, this is precisely the kind of case where you want to make sure the market rewards that person. Because think of it this way, suppose not just this guy, but suppose there were, had been a hundred other people just like him around the country doing that. Well, then that does two things. Even just in, in, in terms of a static you know the the assuming that the number of hand, the amount of the bottles of hand sanitizer are just a fixed number period, and it's just a matter of how do they get distributed, the more people who'd been acting like him, then he would have had ninety nine other competitors, right, dumping stuff on eBay once the price spiked, and so that would have brought the price down. okay, so instead of this guy being able to sell it, whatever it was, thirty times his original price, he would only sell it ten times if more people had been doing that, okay and when you say like, well, what's the you know just a matter? It's a bottle of hand sanitizer. It's a bottle of hand sanitizer because it's the it's the rationing effect. What you don't want to have happen is, or, or let's let's say this guy hadn't done that, right? Let's say he hadn't dro- driven his truck around and loaded up and cleaned out all the places around him. So if he hadn't done that, that means those dollar stores or whatever would have still had a bunch of hand sanitizer on the shelf. And so once this virus panic started picking up steam. All it would have meant was the first few households who hit those dollar stores and Walmart and whatever would have cleaned out the hand sanitizer. So instead of it all sitting in this guy's storage unit, there would have been a bunch of households, a lucky few in the area, or I shouldn't say lucky, a a farsighted few, (laughs) a wise few who saw this before others did, would have had a bunch of hand sanitizer sitting in their pantry right? Because that's, that's your natural inclination. When you get to the store and you know something's going on, you buy a bunch. Okay. So it's not obvious if people in big cities, you know, especially in hospitals and where, if they're desperate for hand sanitizer and they don't have any, and then there's a bunch of houses in Alabama that now in their pantry have three months worth of hand sanitizer, how is that a social outcome? That's not what you want to have happen. And so again, if this guy, you know, cleaned out his local area and then was allowed to distribute them through the mails according to the price that the market would bear, that would take that stockpile in his area and instead of having it just sit in the first 10% of households that happened to hit the stores, it would now be spread up uniformly to various places across the country, right? And again, the more people that had done that, the more that would be the case. And so the unconscionable price would have been lower. So that's just the static analysis. Now let's take into account the fact that there's not a fixed number of hand sanitizer bottles. The more people who had been acting like him, and especially the earlier they had done it, right? You're someone who's running a dollar store. Some guy comes in and he cleans the shelf out and then even says, hey, do you got any more of those in the back? And you're like, well, yeah, we got a a case. Yeah, I'll buy those too. Okay, what are you gonna do? Well, the next time you order again from the factory or your supplier, you would order a lot more hand sanitizer because you just got cleaned out. OK, so I don't know the exact production schedule of hand sanitizer bottles, but I'm saying the more people who had acted like this guy, especially the earlier they had done it, that would have communicated up the chain of supply so that whoever makes hand sanitizers would have made more than they otherwise would have. All right. So, again, the, punishing this guy, all you're doing is ensuring that next time around. No one acts like him and you want people to act like him. Like I said, I think we can all agree if a thousand people had acted like him, that would have been great. So it's kind of weird that you're mad at one guy for doing something that you really wish a thousand people had done. That would have distributed the hand sanitizers more uniformly around the country instead of just letting a few people who happen to get to the store first, clean them out. It's a similar thing with with these masks that again, I think the authorities deliberately downplayed how this virus was spread through the air because they knew if the public found out about this, they would quote panic and clean the masks out. So the way to ensure that healthcare workers, like especially people in the hospital who are dealing with these patients face to face, the way to ensure that they're the ones to get the masks is to have the price go up. And so a major hospital, they can afford to pay whatever the market will bear for the masks. And so the average person who's just panicked and lives in a suburb somewhere in Albuquerque they can just say well geez, you want me to pay how much for one of these masks for uh, let me let's wait honey let's let's see if the price comes down this is kind of crazy right that's the way in a market you ensure that the limited quantities get to where they need to go um another element too with the high price in the bottles of hand sanitizer i mean i'm a germaphobe i we just were lucky i happen i had recently bought or even even got as a christmas present that someone got it to me you know as a is a sort of thing just because they know, oh, yeah, Bob's a germaphobe, got me a three pack of the hand sanitizer, right? So among other things, the high price communicates to people how scarce it is and lets them know, for example, whether they should be really careful with it, right? Because in other words, right now we know hand sanitizer got cleaned out and we have several bottles of the stuff just because I travel a lot and I always, am a germaphobe and so I have a ton of this stuff at any given moment because I don't want to have to go on a trip and not have it but we don't know how rapidly we should use it, right? We don't know exactly when the stores are going to be well-stocked again. So if, if, the, if the stores always had bottles of hand sanitizer, maybe they have to lock it in a glass case or something the way they do with other high-priced mer- merchandise at this point. But it's, it's better to see what it is and what the price is that gives you an idea of is it becoming more or less scarce over time, you know, in, in some economically relevant sense, right? The, in other words... If you went to the store and you could see at any given time, oh yeah, we've got toilet paper, we've got hand sanitizer, but in order to get it, this is what you got to pay. And then you could just keep going every other day and checking and see if the price came down. And then you would know, oh, okay, the, you know, the manufacturers are getting back online and the stuff's coming, and you you'd have a better sense of what to do. Another example, too, is in case there are people around the country that happen to have a bunch of hand sanitizer for whatever reason, you know, maybe it's uh some uh some company that that gives it out as a, as you know, part of the s- swag, you know, like they have uh drink holders and stuff like that, or pens with their company name and maybe whatever, somebody had these, whatever people who happen to have stockpiles of hand sanitizer around. If all of a sudden the price jumps up, they're going to go find it and sell it to people. Whereas if the price is not allowed to jump up, they're not going to bother. Okay. And so get little things like that, that the way you motivate people around the country to do what they can to help on some specific issue is you let the price reflect how urgently is this needed. And so if there are people around the country willing to pay a bunch, I mean, just think of it that way. That guy, he had a bottle of hand sanitizer. There was someone in America that wanted to pay a bunch of money for it and eBay wouldn't let him. How is that helping the person who wanted to pay that for the hand sanitizer? Now that person doesn't get it, right? In other words, it's not that the guy was forced to give it to the person at the regular price. He just didn't send it. So it's not obvious how that helps, you know, ah, we've protected you from price gouging. Of course, now you don't have hand sanitizer, but at least you didn't get ripped off. It's not its not obvious how that's supposed to help anybody. Okay, well, I think I've exhausted that topic. A lot more to be said. And as I say, uh, this situation is rapidly evolving and I'll continue to watch this as will all of you. Thanks for listening, everybody, and uh, stay safe out there. See you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.